Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Amanda McGow. Dr. McGow is a survivor of suicide loss herself, as well as a licensed psychologist with specialized focus on grief, suicidality, dialectical behavior therapy, and suicide loss. On this episode, Amanda and I talk about her losing her childhood friend Kelly to suicide nearly two decades ago. We talk about her experience at Kelly's funeral and how funerals for suicide deaths differ from other losses. We talk about some of the risk factors associated with specific lines of work, including construction. We also talk about the possibility for suicidal behavior to transmit between generations. And finally, Amanda shares her experience as a clinician treating patients affected by suicide. I really enjoyed this conversation and got a lot out of it, and I hope you do as well. And quick note, I am recovering from sinus surgery right now. I promise I don't sound like this for the whole episode. Uh, And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's better H-E-L-P dot com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Amanda, good to see you. Hi, Rob. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Um, I was introduced to Amanda through Betsy Rhodes, who we had on uh, episode three of the podcast, and she spoke very highly of you, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. Um, If I'm not mistaken, you're based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Is that right? Or around there? Yep, that's right. Okay, we're not far then. I'm over in Asheville, so we're pretty close. Um, let's, let's jump right into it. Um, today I would definitely like to talk about your experience being a survivor of suicide loss, as well as your clinical experience being a psychologist and also kind of pull on some of your experience with, uh, AFSP. There is a question I like to lead with, um, in regards to your friend Kelly, who I'm sure we'll talk about at length today. I'm wondering if you could walk us through what you would say is one of the most important things you've learned either from Kelly or from losing him to suicide. Gosh, there's so many things I feel like the loss of my friend Kelly has taught me and it's really shaped the direction of my career as well. Um, I think one of the most important lessons that I took away from Kelly was that getting support for suicide loss survivors is critical. 
Kelly's mother um, had ended her life when we were in the eighth grade. Um, he was at home when this happened, and we grew up, um, Rob, in a very rural part of North Carolina, where there's just not a lot of resources. There was not a lot available. And of course, you know, this was a number of years ago. This was in the 90s um, when his mother passed by suicide. And so I know that Kelly didn't get any treatment. He didn't get mm. any support. He didn't have anybody else that he knew, that, that we knew, that had had a similar loss or anything like that. And so he literally was just expected to kind of keep trudging along and, you know, keep moving through life. And um, I believe that not having addressed that loss is one significant factor that contributed to him losing his own life by suicide at age 22. So it really highlighted to me, we have to take good care of our lost survivors because there's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of trauma there. And if it's not dealt with, it can surface in unhealthy ways. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And if I remember correctly from an article you published with AFSP, I think Kelly was in eighth grade when he lost his mom to suicide. That's right. He was in the eighth grade and, um, you know, he was at home when she passed away. He was playing football out in the yard with another friend of ours. And um, we all knew his mother had struggled significantly with mental health. Um, his aunt, his mom's sister, had also died by suicide uh, mm. before that. And, you know, I knew his father had some mental health issues as well. He had a very difficult childhood um, for sure. But he, you know, was in eighth grade. Here we are, you know, transitioning such an important time in life too. I think about, you know, just that development of adolescence and you're kind of starting to figure out who you are and to lose your mother that way. I think it was just very hard on him. Absolutely. Yeah. Not, not that it's ever easy, but that's, that's a very difficult age to lose a parent. Kind of going, going back to around that time, I know you, you've known Kelly for most of your life, right? Yeah, absolutely. We had gone to school together forever. Yeah. So at the time that that happened and kind of immediately following that, do you remember having any conversations with Kelly about the loss of his mom? Is it something he spoke about openly or was he pretty guarded about it? I think he was very guarded. Um, there were very limited conversations that he would have, um, not a lot of acknowledgement of it. I felt like you could see the sadness on him, but it was so hard for him to talk about. And, you know, I recognize now, um, maybe more so, you know, as an adult versus when I also was a teenager with him, it probably was very hard for him to think, well, all of you, you know, still have your parents and, you know, the rest of us were kind of living a typical teenage life, if you will. And his life had just been completely upended. Um, Kelly was never like a huge feelings human to start with, um, talking about, you know, emotional things um, definitely was not his jam, but we we saw him be even more guarded with the loss of his mom. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. I'm hoping you could spend a little bit of time telling me about not just your relationship and friendship with Kelly, but a little bit about what he was like as a person. Yeah, I, I love talking about what he was like as a person. Thanks for asking that, Rob. Kelly was really cool. Um, he, 
he is the person who told me Santa isn't real. <laughs> so I have that fun memory of him in fourth grade and this huge like uh, argument kind of battle that he and I had back and forth about whether Santa was real. And, you know, he, he won that one, needless to say. <laughs> Uh, but that's kind of a fun, you know, memory I look back on with him. Uh, he just had a ton of personality. He was always the cool guy. He was the one that all the girls, you know, had crushes on. Kelly was very athletic. Um, he was really into baseball in particular, although he loved UNC basketball. Uh -huh. um, huge Tar Heel fan. Um, you know, he really ran into some challenges too. I think part of his personality involved being willing to take some risk and there were maybe some good things about that. They were fun, but some pieces of that too, that I think, you know, certainly got him into trouble. Um, there was a softer side of him. We were actually even younger. I think we were in fourth or fifth grade, maybe fifth grade, I think it was, when we were in a um, bus accident um, that unfortunately ended in the result of um, the other car, the two people that were in the car passed away. And wow. it was very traumatic. And I think Kelly and I both had a little bit of that, like, I want to know more part of our personalities. And we both were told not, you know, everybody was told not to look out. And, and of course he and I were immediately looking out. And then I was very upset by what I had seen. And he was so comforting, so kind. So he could lean into that, but I think it was easier for him to be caring towards others than maybe to care for his own emotional state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That doesn't seem like an uncommon story, especially among men. Uh, it's, it yes. seems like something we've touched on time and time again on this podcast is those who have lost a loved one to suicide who is a man or, or male identifying. It seems like this recurring theme of being really caring and soft, but not always having the vehicle to communicate that, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to caring for oneself. Um, it's something I know I've I've definitely struggled with and I'm learning to get more in touch with over time, but it's definitely not been easy and it's been a process of unlearning a lot of things that have been kind of fed to me throughout uh, most of my life. I'm wondering if we could shift a little bit and if you could walk me through the experience of finding out that Kelly had died by suicide. Um, so the process of you finding out and the immediate aftermath. Yeah. So Kelly ended his life um, on Thanksgiving Day. Mm. And I was at home. Um, I had just started my first semester of graduate school, pursuing clinical psychology degree. And on the local news that night, again, we were from a very small town. Um, on the local news that evening, there was a report that there was a possible um, murder that was being investigated in Greenville. And not a lot else about it, but it said the name of the road. And I thought, hmm. And the next morning, I got a phone call from a fellow classmate who said that um, that report had actually been about Kelly and that the way that things were, and I won't go into a lot of detail here um, for obvious reasons, but the way that things were that initially the police did have to rule out possibility of a murder. However, all of the evidence suggested that Kelly had killed himself. Um, and they were very clear um, 
about that. Any doubt had been erased. And it was incredibly shocking. It was gut-wrenching. There was, I say shocking because I just didn't expect it, but at the same time, I knew he had struggled. But I was just incredibly upset about it, as was the friend of ours who who reached out to me. Um, I then had to reach out to a couple of other friends who um, needed to know as well. Um, and I still, to this day, remain just very heartbroken about this loss, but heartbroken in addition, because, you know, Thanksgiving Day is about what we're grateful for. And um, I think that he had just lost connection with things in his life that felt good to him. Um, He had just lost a job. He was a construction worker. And that is a field that we do know has a higher rate of um, suicide than other fields. They're kind of at the top, unfortunately, occupationally for risk. And he had lost his job about two weeks beforehand. Um, And I think that that was another factor, but it was all just devastating to hear. And I know so many people feel that way when they hear their loved one is gone. And I can, I can almost feel the, the feelings you're describing of immediately finding out having gone through a similar phone call in, in the loss of my dad in 2017 um, it's something you really only understand once you feel it. And you talk about the feeling of shock. And I think in your article, you also described it as numbness that carried throughout the funeral. And I'm hoping yeah. to pull on, pull on that next because that was also my experience. The first emotions that came up were obviously shocked that this had happened. And then numbness, which felt like a protective mechanism my body was protecting me from everything else that was trying to come up in that moment. And uh, I will throw out there as well, just an invitation. You're welcome to go into as much or as little detail uh, with anything as you feel comfortable Um, with the show and the subject matter. Obviously there are some pretty heavy things that we get into. And if we happen to get into anything that may be, hard for listeners to hear or potentially triggering, I will provide a a warning for that at the beginning of the episode. Um, So just wanted to throw that out there. And and if you could, uh, maybe let's walk a little bit further into those feelings of shock and numbness and how that carried out for the uh, immediate aftermath, including the funeral. Yes. Yeah, I definitely had a lot of, of numbness. It felt surreal in a lot of ways to me. Um, I kept going back in my mind the last time that me and a group of friends had seen him and um, just some of the things that you know he had said that were very positive, that were very hopeful. And so that really did not fit with hearing that you know he had ended his life. Um, it, it was a lot to wrap my mind around. And unfortunately, some of our closest friends were not in town. They were not in our hometown at the time. They were out of state. So that made it harder too. I think, to just not be. I had a few friends who, who were there, which was great. And we all could be together. But, um, you know, just really missing the support and camaraderie, I think, of love for Kelly with the others was also really hard. And the funeral itself, I asked my mom to go with me. Um, I knew I could not 
go by myself. And I knew my friends were also hurting and I just felt like I needed her support. Of course she said yes. And, um, you know, she had known Kelly too, obviously. And I was really terrified, Rob, to go to the service. And in part, it was because I knew that, um, I knew that it was being held by a Baptist church, nothing against a Baptist church. That's where his grandparents had attended church. But I was terrified that someone was going to say because he had killed himself, he was going to hell. And I Mm. absolutely, absolutely knew that was not the truth. That's not the God that I know that God would not punish someone for mental illness in the same way. God doesn't, punish people who die by, you know, diabetes complications or heart disease or any, any other thing. Right. And I just, so I had that, I think that was the most real like feeling I could actually tap into in the moment was this constant fear that like they were going to say that and I was going to lose my mind (laughs) if they did. Yeah. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to control my mouth um, to be honest with you, because that would be just horrifying. But that's not the approach that they took at all. Thank goodness. Um, you know, nothing like that was said. In fact, the opposite was said things that were comforting about, you know, where Kelly was and that he had peace now. And, you know, um, that was helpful for, for me to hear. I already knew that, but that was a fear that I really took into that day. In addition to just having to try to wrap my brain around the loss of him, which obviously I could not do immediately. That's just, it was too much for me to process all at once. Um, Really accepting that loss and what it meant took a lot longer than just the duration of a few days in his service. Absolutely. And, And I appreciate you sharing about your experience around the funeral it's something that I feel isn't spoken about enough when it comes to losing a loved one to suicide, because there is this added layer of fear uh, and you hit it perfectly. What are people going to think? What are people going to say? And that was definitely my experience uh, with, with my dad as well. When it comes to faith and how faith responds to a suicide, I think there are a lot of great leaders out there today helping to shift that view and that conversation, which is a, just an excellent thing. Like Melinda Moore is someone that comes to mind as being someone of strong faith who is a survivor of suicide loss and very connected to helping us advance the way that the church looks at, at these things, because I had that fear as well and had a similar experience that you did. Nothing was really said that, um, caught me off guard or, uh, none of the fears that I had were necessarily fulfilled about what others would say at the funeral. Something else I'd like to pull on a little bit that you touched on, and it's another thing that I don't think is really spoken about a lot. And it's really the first thing we have to deal with as survivors of suicide loss, which is the immediate aftermath, which for me was arriving on scene where my dad had completed suicide being met by paramedics and investigators. There were police cars and ambulances. And you use the word surreal. Um, I would use that and take it a step further. And when I replay it in my mind, it feels like a movie that I've watched, like a really Mm -hmm. intense movie. And I have a hard time 
putting myself there and like accepting that I was really there because it feels so surreal. And you mentioned that Kelly's suicide was being investigated as a potential murder. And unfortunately, I think that's the case with most, if not all suicides, is there is an investigation around it to rule out any foul play or any possibility of anything other than suicide. Um, it was definitely the case in the loss of my dad and others that I've spoken to have, 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 had, have had to go through that as well. I'm wondering if there's any part of you that hung on to that as a possibility um, that because the truth, which sounds like is Kelly took his own life, that is almost a bigger, a bigger thing to tackle and accept than maybe someone else did this. Did you have any part that hung on to that initial story that maybe there was something else at play here? Yes, I think um, a lot of us did. I, I certainly did myself at first. So, you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier, Rob, that, you know, Kelly had that, you know, risk-taking, fun-seeking part of his personality. And unfortunately, again, with unaddressed trauma of losing his mother, he did get involved in substances and um, drugs at one mm -hmm. point in time. And he had been shot during a drug deal gone wrong. He was wow. shot in his abdomen and, you know, was able to recover and everything, which is great. And that really created some positive changes for Kelly. This was um, a turning point, I think, in his life in terms of his decision-making. So knowing that he had been involved in drugs, he had even been, like I said, shot yeah. um, as a, you know, a part of that. Absolutely. There, there were questions about it. And, you know, Kelly's suicide is a little bit different than a lot of the others that I've heard. All are, all are different. All are different in some ways. Right. But he essentially tortured himself in some ways and so that added another element of like well did we not we as in me but like the police did they get it right did they really understand um that somebody who had a little more access to that information than I did felt very certain that that's exactly what this was that he had in fact ended his own life and that there were some strong reasons to believe that in addition to the forensic um, evidence that, you know, he was the only one that was there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I just want to take a moment to, to process that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely heavy stuff. And, and I yeah. do appreciate you sharing it with me today. I know it's, it can't be easy to talk about. There, there is something you mentioned a little earlier that um, I was hoping we could spend some time talking about, which was something I, I actually didn't know. You mentioned the higher risk factor amongst that uh, that career, which is like being uh, construction workers. And when you mentioned that, I was thinking through what some of the potential risk factors could be um, being a, uh, an industry largely dominated by men. And obviously we know men having a higher rate of completed suicide. There may be being some chronic pain at play, being a largely physical job. The fact that a lot of it is contract-based, there may be long layoffs and uncertainty between jobs. Is there anything else that I might be missing that you think contributes to that being a higher risk population? 
you're really hitting on a lot of it, Rob. Um, we also do see higher substance abuse rates mm. um, among construction, again, probably linked to pain, linked to inconsistency of the job. There are also a lot of construction jobs that require a person to, for a period of time, live apart from their family. So the job, for example, might be four hours away. And so, you know, they're five days a week, four hours away from family, away from that support. And that's another factor that we've seen play a role here, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. It's it's definitely part of this project for me is trying to understand better the groups that are at higher risk. Why are they and what, if anything, can be done to help support them? Um, so definitely want to file that into, into something I can think about later. When it comes to the feelings that came up for you around Kelly's suicide, you talk about some of the shock and the numbness, and it sounds like some deep sorrow. Were there any other emotions that came up either in the immediate aftermath or in the last 20 years or so emotions that surprised you? Yes. Um, I, felt a lot of anger towards both of his parents. Yeah. I felt very angry with his mom for ending her life with, um, pardon me, with him there. Um, you know, I felt angry at his dad for not getting him support, not getting him help, not understanding what an impact that would have. I do know, Rob, some of that anger is not fair that I felt towards them, right? Like, I do not believe, you know, that his mother's intention was to create harm, trauma, you know, for him, right? We know, you know, that that's not the purpose of the person who dies by suicide. That's not their goal. But I felt a lot of anger towards both of his parents. Um, and just, yes, immense sorrow. Like, for the longest time, Carolina, um, Carolina basketball, excuse me, I'd watch it and I'd be like, you should be here. You should be watching this. Like, you're missing this. Why are you, you know, like just a lot of sadness that he had a lot, a lot of life ahead of him and it was just gone. Um, and it felt like, it felt like that was a waste, you know, like he had a lot to offer the world. He had really gotten himself back on track with making some healthier decisions. And yet, you know, it's just he's gone. It is, it is incredibly sad. And I do understand the anger, um, at least un understand through my experience with it. I think I felt a lot of anger toward my dad. Um, in, in what I felt was a lack of consideration for how that choice would affect us, his family and his inner circle. Um, like you said, I do understand that some of that anger is unfairly placed. I did feel a lot of anger and resentment toward his place of work mm -hmm. because my dad was always at work. He worked seven days a week. He worked long hours. And I think I've come to terms and realized that a lot of that was just his personality. I think my dad turned to work as a form of escapism from dealing with some other underlying mental disorders and, and other conditions. Um, but I think it's, it's only natural for anger to be one of the strong emotions that come up because we, we need someone or something to blame. 
this happened, this happened for a reason, right? That's, I think the way our thought process works around it. So what is that reason? Who can I point the finger at to help me deal with this immense sorrow? I think you're so right, Rob. I think that that's just a natural response that we have, even if it's not a hundred percent rooted in, you know, fairness that, um, we can be mad at that person or mad at their circumstances. I certainly had anger when you said about your dad's job. I thought, oh yeah, I remember being very mad that he'd been laid off, yeah. you know, and thinking, well, what the heck? If you hadn't laid him off, maybe he'd still be here. Um, I can't know the answer to that, but I don't like that that happened. And I think it contributed. Um, but that's obviously not what their purpose was either in laying him off. I mean, that, that happens in that industry as we talked about. Yeah. And I think part of the work is being able to accept that all of those things can exist at the same time that in Kelly's case, and it sounds like in my dad's case as well, it it sounds like there were some unfair things at play around their work. Um, And there probably were other contributing factors in terms of people, places, and things. Uh, And at the end of the day, this is still a decision that was made by Kelly and by my dad for whatever their reasons may be. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering now with it being, it is about 20 years, right? Since you've lost Kelly. Yes. Mm -hmm. You you talked to, yeah, you talked about your experience with some of the sorrow showing up like around like Carolina basketball and I'm sure other reminders of, of Kelly as well. What is that like for you today? When you have those reminders, has your relationship with them changed at all? I think it has changed some, Rob. Um, The sorrow and the sadness is still there. Like, I'm always going to miss him. But there's also, even as you ask that question, I can feel myself begin to smile a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. there's parts of it now that when I think about some of those things, it's, it's heartwarming because I can connect with the positive pieces of having known Kelly and having had the experience of all the things that he brought into my life. You know, Mm. I have a um, fourth grader right now, which is the same age that Kelly told me Santa wasn't real and finally convinced (laughs) me he was right, (laughs) you know, and this is my daughter's probably, you know, last year believing in Santa. So as I have been preparing, you know, all the Santa gifts and everything this year, Rob, I have thought so much about Kelly and it just giggled at times while I'm sitting there wrapping these gifts and thinking, you know, oh my gosh, she was so right. And the lengths to which we went to, to try to prove each other wrong with some of that was just crazy. It was all in good fun. Um, But just, I can think about that in a happy way now. Um, same thing with some Carolina things. I went to an event um, a couple of weeks ago with Carolina football, actually, but just, you know, a big kind of Carolina tailgate. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, he would have just loved this. And there was more of a smile and a connection in thinking about him than there was just the depths of sorrow and sadness that I felt for such a long time. I have had anniversaries, though, that have hit me harder than others. When um, the date of his death falls on Thanksgiving, which happens obviously every handful of years, um, that for some reason continues to be extremely hard for me. Um, And so I just have to work really hard being gentle uh, with myself on those days. I always remember the anniversary, but it's it's that landing on Thanksgiving part that uh, is particularly hard. Absolutely. 
I think anniversaries, which kind of a side note, but I'm hoping we can come up with a better term for the occurrence date or the event date. Anniversary doesn't feel right to me. Uh, Anniversary feels like something that is purely celebratory. And when it comes to suicide loss, there's a whole different range of emotions that come into play. Uh, So for my dad, I just call it the event date. I don't know what else to call it. If there's something better, I'd love to hear it. Um, But I've definitely had that experience as well. The the kind of shifting of the way that reminders make me feel. When I first lost my dad, I avoided anything that would make me think about him. I couldn't really look at pictures. My dad was a big music guy. He turned me on and, and introduced me to music, which created my love of it. Any music that would remind me of my dad, I stayed away from it. If a song would come on that would remind me of him, I would skip it. Um, Him and I would ride motorcycles together. That was one of the big things we would do. My motorcycle sat in the garage collecting dust for probably two and a half years after losing him because I couldn't bring myself to hop on it. And now Mm -hmm. I think I'm starting to finally come out of that and starting to feel some of that joy you described when I get a reminder of my dad. My dad had a lot, he was a really funny guy and he had a lot of just like silly ways of saying things. Um, And I've noticed myself starting to say some of those things again. Uh, Like an example, if we would be ordering food for the family, um, my dad would always try to make one of us go pick it up. And his way of saying that would be if you buy or if you, if you fly, I'll buy. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I said that last week, I was talking to my girlfriend, I was like, if if you fly, I'll buy, meaning if you go and get it, I'll pay for it. Yeah, it's just such a silly thing. That. But I noticed myself saying it. And it, it felt really good to connect with that and almost be able to hear him saying it. Yeah, I, I do want to yeah. shift gears a little bit. And I, I know we'll come back and and talk more at length about Kelly and your your relationship with the loss. I do want to spend some time pulling on something that you mentioned, which is how it influenced your career path. It sounds like at the time that that Kelly died, you were already in school, uh, in grad school to become a psychologist. How did that event shift your course and bring you to where you are now? It was absolutely instrumental in shifting the course of my career. So definitely already knew I wanted to be a psychologist, but really thought I was going to focus maybe on like eating disorders or, you know, other things, not suicide prevention and suicide loss. So I was home, as I mentioned, for my first semester that Thanksgiving that Kelly passed away. And when I went back to school the next week, several of my classmates knew that I had had this loss, but I had not disclosed it to any of my professors. And my professor who was teaching our um, psychopathology class, which really means basically learning about mental health diagnoses, we were learning about depression that week. And he basically said that you do not want to treat suicidal individuals because there's just too much risk, like too much risk to your license. Absolutely. I see you shaking your head. No, Rob, like that lit a fire under me. Because I immediately thought, what if he had reached out for help? And some therapist had been like, well, no, I'm not going to treat you because that's too much risk for me. So good luck with your suicidal thoughts. 
Like, absolutely not. We're in the field to help people. And I was just so incredibly incensed. I was incredibly angry. <laughs> it's amazing. My rage did not fly out of me in the middle of that class. Um, and I, I really decided like, no, I want to learn the most that I can about how to support people who are struggling with suicide. So I finished my master's in that program. And as I was applying for my PhD, I specifically looked for programs that would include some in-depth training in supporting suicidal individuals. And that's how I got into dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. Um, so my PhD training included a lot of that work. I worked with someone who was specifically researching um, using DBT with adolescents. Um, so that had a lot of interest for me. Um, and then from there, have gotten any training I can get on suicide loss as well. Um, because what we do to help people who've had a loss helps prevent future losses as well as, of course, helps them, um, you know, learn to carry the weight of that loss um, but still have a life that they feel is, is worth living and that they can get enjoyment out of. So Kelly has really been the inspiration behind the majority of my professional career. Um, without that loss, I'm not sure that I would have gone in this direction. Um, and it brought up a lot for me. I definitely want to spend some time talking about DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. One of our recent episodes was with Dr. Stephen O'Connor, who works for the National Institute of Mental Health. And he came up under Marsha Linehan um, in, her, in her lab. Um, and I've been on the receiving end of uh, dialectical behavior therapy in a group setting. So it's something I'm very passionate about and something I believe we should all be taught from a very young age when we're in school. And it's amazing to me that we're not. It's amazing that it takes a tragedy or uh, unfortunate circumstances to lead someone to DBT. So I do want to focus on that. But first, you you talked about your professor mentioning that, and I could feel the rage because I've experienced mm -hmm. it as well, talking about how as a clinician, you need to avoid patients who are suicidal. And I, I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what that pressure feels like to be a clinician and have to feel the pressure of helping someone who's dealing with some something that large. And it does seem like there is some resistance um, in the clinical environment uh, in, in staying away from patients who are dealing with suicidal intensity. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because it sounds like you've gone the opposite way with it and you've made it an area of focus, which I respect and honor a lot. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the flip side of that, why you think clinicians shy away from those who have dealt with suicide in any way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for someone who's had a, a recent loss, they may not be done with their own work in, in trying to kind of heal and assimilate that loss. And so maybe they, as a clinician, feel like they would be triggered or would not be able to provide the best care right now. Um, I don't know, can't speak for that person, but that is a piece of this and we have to do our own work around this. I've certainly had my own, you know, grief counseling um, around the loss of Kelly. Um, and that was instrumental in me being able to lean in and to do more of this work. I think in general, a lot of clinicians are not well trained on suicide assessment and prevention measures. 
there's a lot of research out there that even shows us that. There was a study done uh, by the American Association of Suicidology a number of years ago that shows that only half of psychologists received significant, you know, any, any degree, excuse me, of training around suicide prevention and assessing of a client. So I think it's fear that keeps people away from treating these individuals more than anything else. They haven't gotten the appropriate training. And as a mental health field, we have to do better with that. Every single person, I say, this is my, my philosophy, Rob, every single mental health professional treats suicidal clients, whether they know it or not, right? Not every person who is suicidal is going to be forthcoming about that. But we are all sitting across from people and holding safe space for people who may be struggling with the question of do I want to live or not? So we all need to have that training. We all need to have the appropriate skills to respond and to support someone. So really, to me, there is no such thing as a therapist who can avoid that. They can try, um, unfortunately, right? And they can say, no, I'm not going to see these people. But the reality is that that's just not the case. We're not that good as a field at a, you know, as a field at predicting who's going to die by suicide. There's no way to weed out everyone who's struggling with that. And I, you know, would advocate, of course, that we don't want to do that anyway. We want to be that safe landing place for people. For someone to acknowledge that they're struggling with thoughts of ending their life is one of the most vulnerable things that another human can share with us. We oh. have to respond appropriately. We have to be there. Thank you for sharing that. That really hit home for, for me, the way you characterize that, that whether you know it or not, as a clinician, you're all working with someone who's struggling with that in one way or another. You, you talk about the lack of focused training around providing clinicians ways for dealing with clients who may be suicidal. Um, I, I do think there are some fantastic people leading this space and trying to change that. And I've been lucky enough to have spoken with some of them. And one that comes to mind is Jack Jordan. Um, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about his uh, suicide bereavement clinician training program that he does. I'm not sure if that's something you've gone through or have uh, seen him provide, but it's something we talked about on the episode that I did with him. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I, I am a huge Jack Jordan fan. Um, I have Me been too. through his training. Yes, he is so wonderful. Um, he really is contributing significantly to the field of suicide loss in such a meaningful way. Um, I've been through his training three times. I'm that much of a fan. Wow. <laughs> um, I just, you know, have had a couple of opportunities, um, you know, through our chapter, we actually brought him to North Carolina to do a training um, a few years back. So it, through opportunities like that, I've, I've been through his training a couple of times and it's so meaningful. I wish every clinician would get trained in it. Again, you can be working with someone to help with their anxiety or you need to help with relationship problems and they experience a suicide loss and you need to know how to support them through that. So it's something we all um, as therapists, I think, could benefit from going through. And Jack has a really fantastic book, Coping with Suicide Loss, that um, you know I love to share with clients. Yes. I love that you have that handy, Rob. Right next, right next <laughs> to me. It's fantastic. It, yep. It's just so fantastic. 
Um, I really do recommend it. And, you know, some of the money that we, um, you know, raise through our walks with AFSP, we've been able to purchase some of Jack's books to be able to send to new loss survivors so that when they are ready, they can read that book because um, it is such a good resource, but highly recommend his training as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. This was one of the first books that I picked up after losing my dad, maybe about a year, year and a half after his loss. And I've taught people are probably sick of hearing about it because I do talk about it a lot. But in terms of the research I've done, the books that I've purchased, it is the most tactical operational book that I've come across. It gives me step by step, almost to a T, the things that I've experienced in losing my dad. And I, I think it's just so cool that that him and Bob Bauer were able to do that. And if if you are interested in in learning more um, as as a listener, I believe it was episode four that we did with Dr. Jordan, and he does talk a lot about his training. We do talk about his book a little bit, and in the show details, the the show notes for that episode is a link to buy the book if it's something you're interested in. So definitely go check that out if you want to learn more about Dr. Jordan. I know he is considering retiring for real, and I hope he never does. I hope he works until the wheels Same. fall off because we we need him. We really do. Yes. Yes. So let's let's kind of double back. Um, thank you for going down that uh, detour with me. But I do want to come back to dialectical behavior therapy and your experience in going through that training and how you believe that it could be an effective tool for helping someone who's been impacted by suicide in, in any way. So Rob, when you said, I believe everybody could benefit from learning the skills of DBT, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. Um, DBT is really set up to help an individual learn how to understand their emotions better and how to cope with them in healthy ways that don't add to any problems that a person's experiencing. Um, so really a very strong set of healthy coping tools. And who doesn't need that, right? Whether it's dealing with the tragedy of a suicide loss or dealing with work stress or, you know, any anything, right? We're all going to encounter stressful situations in life. It's just part of the human condition and it's inevitable. But we are not taught as kids how to do healthy coping, right? Like not at all. And so most of us grow up kind of imitating what we think we are seeing our parents do or not do. And so with DBT, we are teaching a person how they can have better control over their emotional state instead of their emotions running their life and having control over them. When I'm working with a lost survivor and using some of the DBT strategies, we're talking a little bit about the dance of grief where sometimes we're going to step in and let ourselves feel those emotions, process those emotions. We have to do it. It's painful, but we have to do it. And then sometimes we're going to step out, right? And we're going to give ourselves a break and we're not going to focus on the loss and the things that we feel about it. So when we're in the emotions, we've got to kind of, again, be aware, think about what are we feeling? What are we experiencing? Name it, validate it for ourselves. DBT helps us do all that. And then when we're stepping out, maybe we need distraction. Maybe we need to focus on doing some things in our life that bring some positive emotions in for us, for example. So that's just a very kind of brief example of how DBT can help when we're working with grief. 
Yeah, very well said. And I find myself using DBT language, if not on a daily basis, at least multiple times a week. I'll, I'll be struggling with something and I'll have to stop and be like, okay, am I in rational mind right now or emotion mind? And what I've come in like, what, I, what I've come to realize in learning about myself more is that I live in rational mind, constantly analyzing things and not always being in touch with the feelings behind them. But then I get hijacked by emotions and then that takes control. And DBT is such a cool, uh, such a cool tool and modality because it provides tools across different domains. So the one I think you spent a lot of time talking about in your answer there was the emotion regulation piece, which is so important, especially for anyone who's dealing with an underlying mood or personality disorder. I think emotion regulation is incredibly important and beyond that for everybody. I don't think, like I, like I said earlier, I don't think we're taught how to regulate our emotions in an effective way. And then there's also a domain that focuses on interpersonal relationships, which I don't know anyone that couldn't benefit from that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then there's a third domain and it's escaping me right now. Distress tolerance. Distress tolerance. Yes. And is there a fourth? So we also have mindfulness, right? Which is kind of yeah. that tuning in. And you mentioned that when you mentioned the three states of mind um, as a part of that. And then with adolescence, I'm not sure if you got it presented this way in your experience, Rob, but with adolescence, we also have something called walking the middle path, which is where we take a deeper dive into what is dialectical thinking? How can two things be true at the same time? How can we validate ourselves and other people? Um, basically, how can we do some problem solving and not get stuck in just our perspective? Um, so it involves a lot of relationship stuff there, too. Can you give me an example of what a, a dialectical or dialectic thought could look like for someone? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, as we're talking about grief and suicide loss, we can be angry and love the person at the same time, Right. We can feel such a myriad of emotions that might seem to be conflicting. I actually, that's one I work with a lot with suicide loss survivors. I am so angry at what this person did and how it's affected me. And yet I love them. How can that coexist? Well, it can, as you pointed out earlier, that that's part of managing your grief. Um, we can say I'm doing the best that I possibly can. And yet I have to try harder. That's something I think is true for all of us in life in many different ways, right? We are doing our best. And yet, as humans, we are continually working towards change and trying to do better and trying to improve things in our life. Um, so that's another common dialectic. Got it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like walking the middle path may be learning to live between those two thoughts where they can both exist at the same time. Yes. Is that a good way to characterize it? That's right. Exactly. It's the opposite of black and white kind of thinking, right? So we can get really myopic and, and it's only one way or the other way. It's all or nothing, if you will. Yeah. And very few things in life really fall into that category. But when we think that way, we often create suffering for ourselves and it can also negatively impact our relationships. Absolutely. You mentioned some of the nuances in working with adolescents, which is, if I understand correctly, is something you do quite often in your work. Yes. I want to pull on that a little bit. And there's a question that came to mind. Uh, it's it's something I, I spoke a little bit about with uh, with 
um, Dr. O'Connor. Uh, I'm wondering how you would characterize the biggest problems that youth and adolescents are facing today. Wow, um, that's a really big question. There's a it lot is. of directions that my brain kind of immediately goes. Um, you know, I see a lot of strengths in our youth right now. Um, I do feel like they are more open to talking about mental health, um, emotional well-being. Uh, you know, boy, I love some of the things I get to, to witness and be a part of individually and with even some of the schools that I support here locally where adolescents are really leaning in. So while I think that there's a lot of positive things that are happening, I do believe we have a large amount of adolescents who are struggling, who feel very disconnected. Um, social media is, you know, a, a mixed bag as, is, as are many things in life. Um, there's some wonderful things about social media that can even build connection. However, I see a lot of adolescents who lose sight of what's real because what I post on my Insta is not my whole life, right? That's true for all of us. We're, we're posting the positives. And so there's a lot of that FOMO or fear of missing out or, you know, comparisons that they're doing um, that I think are often quite harmful for our adolescents and are adding to um, some difficulties with emotional well-being. I, I think it's hard to have the conversation around biggest challenges facing not just youth, but really everybody without talking about social media. And it, it's something that comes up every time. And it feels like the more we learn about it, the more we're seeing the unintended consequences of social media. Yes. And I like the way you put it of like losing sight of what's real. Um, mm -hmm. That's something that I think in TikTok culture and Instagram culture, we get really wrapped up in presenting what we think is the best version of ourselves, but may not be real with who we actually are. Um, and uh, to, to take that a little further, I'm wondering what some of the key differences are when you're working with an adolescent versus an adult who may be dealing with suicidal intensity, for example. So there are a few differences, um, you know, with an adult, with the confidentiality laws, unless there's imminent danger, meaning a person is about to take action to harm themselves immediately. Um, confidentiality can tie our hands a little bit. Uh, we may not be able to reach out, but when I'm working with an adolescent who is struggling, I can engage their social supports. Um, you know, I can get parents on board with helping us. Sometimes I'm able to work with the school. Um, school counselors in particular can be a wonderful resource to say, hey, here are some of the, uh, the drivers of suicidality for this kid. This kid's struggling with X, Y, and Z at school. Can we work together? to get this taken care of or resolved in some way. So I'm able to engage more supports in, in most cases, um, you know, with adolescents. And I think that that's huge. It shows them that they're not alone. It shows them that people do care, um, you know, and that we're, we're here for them, um, the adults in their life. I often, when I'm working with adolescents, I'll say, I'm, I'm gonna make up a name here. Like I am Team John right? We are all team John. We are here to help you, John. These are the members of your team. Like we've got your back. Like don't leave us, stay with us. Let us help you figure these things out. Um, and some adults will go along with that too, which is fantastic. 
Um, but again, sometimes if, if they're saying, no, I don't want you to share this with my wife, I'm not in imminent danger. I have had suicidal thoughts, but you don't have my permission to share this. Then it kind of makes it a little bit harder to truly engage their support network. Absolutely. If you're okay with it, I, I would like to speak with you again at another point where we focus specifically on suicide in adolescence. I think that's a fascinating conversation that I would like to dive deeper into. And and while you were speaking, something came to mind that's slightly related. So I'm hoping you'll entertain me on this one. But um, was recently having a conversation with a friend about, for the lack of a, a better phrase, troubled youth programs. A lot of them are wilderness based where they will take um, adolescents who are struggling with depression, anxiety, substance use, behavioral issues, and plop them in the woods for 90 days, and then kind of reintegrate them back into their normal lives. And I think there's a lot of controversy around these programs, especially understanding some of the methods for uh, getting or maybe even forcing uh, the youth to participate in these programs. I've even heard of instances of individuals being abducted in the middle of the night, because obviously if they were going to be told they're going to this thing, they would resist or possibly run away. I'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on these programs and if there are, uh, if there's any data out there about their efficacy that I might not know about. You know, I'm not certain about efficacy data because each program is going to be a little bit different. And just with the change of a director or a staff member, the program changes again. What I can say, my advice to families is always do your research. This is an area where you really have to put in some time to figure out, is this a good, safe, healthy, and helpful place for your child? One excellent resource, if a family can afford it, is to reach out to what is called an educational consultant. The name is a little bit um, misleading, in my opinion, but an educational consultant is a person whose entire job is to match an individual that needs some kind of treatment or support with a treatment program. So they are your boots on the ground in these programs. They are actually out there. They're meeting with people. They're walking through these facilities. They're seeing how the wilderness program works, for example, and they have typically got some really good insight and information about which programs are being run well and which are not. Um, These individuals can be, you know, uh, hired by the hour, you know, like if you're like thinking, hey, I've got these three places on my list for my child, can I run this by you? Or they can do an entire program for your child where they manage the child's treatment alongside of a parent. Um, from beginning to end, which is obviously a more costly experience with them. But that really is, has become the only way, in my opinion, to feel as certain as you possibly can that you're putting your child in a great place. Over the course of my career, there have been places that went from being fantastic to being in nationwide newspapers for really terrible things. Yep, yep. Yes. So it's, it's absolutely research, research, research is required. Make sure you do your, your homework on this. Yeah. Thank you for putting it in those terms. And, and just to be clear, definitely not bad mouthing programs like that. I, I know there are a lot of great programs out there. 
um, who do a lot of great work and really help Mm -hmm. individuals who are struggling immensely. Um, It is just something that I think has been a hot button issue um, with some controversy around it. So just looking to understand it a little bit better. We are um, running a little low on time, but there is one other um, aspect I was hoping to pull on with you, which is your experience with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Definitely want to give you an opportunity to speak to that. Um, I know you are the chapter president for North Carolina, and you're pretty uh, intimately involved with AFSP. Um, Hoping you could talk a little bit about your involvement and what your experience has been with AFSP. Yes, um, AFSP has a very, very special place in my heart, Rob. It has probably... There's no probably about it. It has been instrumental, I think, in just helping me with my own grief, um, helping me find community with other people who've had a suicide loss. Um, You know, I constantly joke with my husband that if we ever win the lottery, I'll quit my job, but I'm volunteering for AFSP full time. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to give away, you know, whatever I can to to help with suicide prevention and, and suicide loss. Um, You know, AFSP has a lot of resources for those of us who have experienced a loss. We have healing conversations program where we can connect you with someone who's had a similar type of loss. So we would connect someone who lost a parent um, with someone else who lost a parent, for example, who's been through some training. So this person has had at least two years since they've had their loss and they've been through a, a training program on how they can be supportive to new newly bereaved individuals. Um, so that's one program. The walks are really how I got started with AFSP. The out of the darkness walks are huge. I also lost a supervisor um, who was a psychologist. I was on maternity leave and he he passed away by suicide. And after that, I was like, I, I need something. Like I know several people, um, you know, who, who had lost by suicide, Kelly being the closest. And I started getting involved in the walks and it was such a game changer for me emotionally. Like it just didn't feel isolating anymore and um, just could see such positive things coming from such sad losses. Um, So that, that was really helpful for me as well. And then we have um, international survivors of suicide loss day. I have hosted the one um, here in Charlotte along with several other mental health colleagues Um, for the past, oh man, like seven or eight years. And on International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, which is always the Saturday before Thanksgiving, we bring together lost survivors for a chance to create connection and to create healing um, and to find some hope. Um, And, you know, Rob, we even had somebody who drove from Asheville to Charlotte this year for our event um, because there wasn't one in Asheville. Yeah. But we have them all across the state. Um, And there are also some virtual events that are available as well. But that can be another really helpful resource for lost survivors. Yeah, thank you for for running through that. I I can't say uh, enough about how incredible AFSP is as a resource. Um, I have recently become a volunteer for the Healing Conversations program and went, excuse me, went through my first conversation around that. Thank you for doing that, Rob. Oh, of course. It's it's been rewarding and I'm glad to be able to give just a little bit back. And I did do my first walk this year as well. They had one in Asheville back in 
October. I think it was late October. And that was an incredible experience, probably about 150 people there. Um, and just so, so powerful to be in a space where you're able to connect with that many people who have been through something similar. Um, and yeah, International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, pretty appropriately timed for you, I'm assuming, understanding the timing of your loss of Kelly. So yeah, just a lot of really great things. And if those listening, if, if you're interested in learning anything about what it is that AFSP does, feel free to reach out to us directly. Um, you could get us on our Instagram. That's probably the best place at writing on the walls podcast. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction for either being a volunteer or on the receiving end of a healing conversation, or could also point you to some resources for uh, the annual walks that might be uh, taking place in, in your location. That is kind of the, well, I do have one more, but that's the last of the formal questions that I had. I do want to give you an opportunity to um, touch on anything maybe that we didn't talk about that you were hoping we would. So maybe anything with your clinical work um, at, at your current practice uh, or, or anything else, anything else that you'd like to plug? Is there anything that comes to mind? Not really. I love the thought of going back um, to talk about adolescence. Um, yes, yes. I, I think that's such a great idea. Um, I have a lot of things I could share with you there. But no, I, I think this is great. Yeah, I really appreciate you joining me today. This this has been really nice to, to be able to speak with you and learn a bit, little bit about the work that you do and your experience in having lost Kelly. The last question I'd like to leave you and our listeners with is one I like to ask at the end. And we, we talked quite a bit about what Kelly was like as a person. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't touched on that you would like some uh, that you would like people to know or remember about Kelly walking away from listening to this. Wow. I think it's just so important for me that his name carries on like that. He is still acknowledged as a person, you know, that Charles Kelly Strickland walked to this earth that he contributed he had experiences. He had you know, many wonderful things in his life. He had many tragedies, but that he is not defined by this final decision that he made. He was so much more mm. than his death. You know, um, he was so much more than that. And I think that that's a really big part of all the things that I do. You know, when I am getting ready to go into a school that's had a loss, for example, I will sit there and I will say a prayer, but I will also be like, all right, Kelly, you got to have my back here, man. Like I need your help. You know, like I, I just want to carry him forward. And I think that that's the last thing I just want people, you know, to remember him. And I want each of you who's had a loss to remember your loved ones in whatever way that that looks like for you. Um, because everybody had a life that preceded those final moments. Um, and that, that death, right? None of us should be defined solely by our death. Uh, that was beautifully said. And I really appreciate you honoring Kelly today by coming on here and talking about him and, and your relationship with him. Um, I think that's 
sometimes the best we can do as survivors of loss, keeping the conversation alive around our loved ones and sharing memories and sharing silly things that they used to say and stories, um, that burden, I think, is on us to to be able to keep that story and our loved ones alive. Um, again, thank you for taking the time out of your day, especially so close to the holidays to come on here and speak with me. And further, uh, I just really appreciate you and the work that you're doing to help other survivors of loss and those who are going through their own experiences and dealing with their own suicidal intensity. So truly thank you for the work that you do. It's, it's much appreciated and very important. Thank you. And thank you for doing this, Rob. I'm excited to listen to your series. Now that I actually have a few days off ahead of me, I, I really am. You've had some uh, major power players um, in the field. I am so excited um, to, to just listen and hear and keep learning. I've been incredibly lucky. I've gotten to speak with some folks that I've been following for a long time. So it's been been really powerful and exciting. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you again soon. I think yeah. we could spend, if we spent an hour and a half today, we could spend three and a half hours talking specifically about um, how suicide affects adolescents differently than adults. So yes. we will definitely get that on the books sometime in the okay. new year. And I'm looking forward to talking to you then. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Enjoy your holidays. You as well. Thanks, Amanda. Talk to you soon. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye now.